Well, turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Esther, and we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to talk about a new queen tonight. In chapter 1, I guess you could say we, we talked about no queen, because Vasti was the no queen. She said no to the king at his command, and he said no to her, and she was gone. He had made up a feast. He had six months of festivities going on for his agenda that he had to to run his own personal campaign in, in a personal war that, that he wanted to take place. And he was trying to get all the provinces on board with that. And then uh, he had a feast finale, if you would, of plans to take his wife and to take her beautiful face and to show it before the lustful drunken men and to take her, her body and, and to reveal it before the men. And, and that's where the, the no queen came in because she said no. And the drunken king said no in his estate, but she had to go. Law was made, and under Persian law, the, there was no reversing it, so, so she had to go. And we looked at the king's agenda, we looked at his alcoholism, and we looked at the aftermath. But now we go from the no queen, if you will, to the new queen. And we're going to look at the plan for the new queen tonight. We're going to look at the person of the new queen tonight. And we're going to look at the providence for the new queen tonight. So look with me in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. Let's read together about this plan for a new queen. It says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan, the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of, of Hege, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maidens which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. You notice that this chapter begins with the three words after these things. Well, after what things? Well, after the things that transpired in chapter 1 that we have shared. The scheme of the king. The selfish campaign that the king had going on. His drunken decision he made. The removal of the queen. The suffering of defeat against the Greeks. His dream and his, his uh, personal agenda was to get revenge on the Greeks. And he lost that. And uh, so now he's pacing the floors. He has no victory. He has no Vashti. 
And in verse 1, we also see there, it says that he remembered Vashti. And don't you know his servants who were very close to him, who were, tried to please him and make good decisions for him, they knew that he was remembering Vashti. And so they have a problem now. They are the ones who came up with the plan to get rid of Vashti. And now he has regret. And he, he's remembering her. And so they've got to come up with a new plan. And they've got to come up with a new plan quick. Because, because they need to appease the king. They know that he is not in a good place. You know, four years have gone by, by the way. And, and the king, being the king... He obviously had some kind of relations that took place. But you cannot replace love with lust. People try to satisfy themselves on lustful relationships. And they go from one to another. And they never please. It does damage in the life. It stains the life. And so it's not going to replace love. Lust doesn't last. But love does. So the servant's plan, to their, their plan is to have beautiful women from every province. There's, there's many provinces. There's 127 provinces it, it is. And the servant's plan to gather beautiful women. And, and they're going to be gathered and, and they're not going to be taken straight to the king. They're going to be taken to the beauty parlor for a year to get them prepared for the king. And then he will choose as to what queen will be his. They weren't brought right before the king. But they were brought to the one in charge of the royal harem. Which is Hege. And he would take them through a beauty treatment process. And we have this. I mean we, we have these extravagant things happening. We, we have a, a, a six month campaign. Of festivals and feasts and partying. That the king took these people of the provinces through. Now we have a one year plan. In order to find a queen. For King Ahasuerus. So the servants uh, get this plan started. They, 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 they get the brainstorming done. And they take this to the king. Some have referred to this or likened it unto a beauty contest. Others, when they consider what the plan is of these servants, they've considered how they are the king's special officers and though this is not a kidnapping, there would be some forcing or some, some heavy influence and bullying, if you would, that would be done on these women who they would choose to be the queen. I could think of how some women maybe would be excited to possibly be the queen. And then others, you know, they're thinking, well, there's going to be one queen. All of these women chosen you know, to, to possibly be queen. Those who are not chosen, the king could keep them for his own concubines, keep them from ever getting married, and that's what they're going to do for life. 
So you can imagine some who were just not thinking ahead and so excited at the thought of attention and, and, and the, the, the royal palace. And yes, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And then others, you think of parents maybe hiding their daughters from such a situation. You, you, think, about, you think about those who might have influenced their daughters to get married real quick. So that they would not even be able to be considered for this plan that's going on. And, and so you have, you know, is it, can you liken it unto a beauty pageant? Maybe for some. Can you liken it unto something that's, that's appointed and almost forced upon the, the women? Uh, definitely maybe for some. So the plan for a new queen, though, it is underway. It is at work. And you think of all these provinces... I mean, if there were two women from every province, that's, that's 254 women. There could very easily have been a couple of hundred women that were gathered for this. So we see the plan here for a new queen. But now let's look in verses 5 through 18, and let's look at the person of the new queen. Verse 5. Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Hege, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Hege, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him. He, and he speedily gave her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her, out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place the house of the house of the women." Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, and after that she had been twelve months, according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her, to go with her out of the king, out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went 
And on the morrow, she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Shaskai's, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king. She required nothing but Hege, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto the king of Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther above all the women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release of the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Well, before we look at the person of the new queen, let's look at the one we come across in the scriptures here first, Mordecai. We come across Mordecai here, and we're going to hear his name about 58 more times Throughout this book, he is very underrated. There's some things a little disappointing about him at, at first, but, but the, the way he ends up, he's, he's underrated and, and deserves more credit than what he has. But we have Mordecai coming upon the scene now. Mordecai is a Jew. And he's living among the Persians. And the Persians, uh, we don't see in the Word of God where the Persians know that he's a Jew. We, we're going to go on to another chapter and see that he tells them that he is a Jew. He was able to prosper in the land. By the end of the message tonight, we'll see that he came into a special position in the government here. Uh, not that he should have been there, not that he should have stayed there. He should have been with his people, given the opportunity that he could have been back with Israel. We can't say that Mordecai was in the very center of God's will by some things that we see in this, but something that we need to understand about this book of Esther is that it's not about the will of God. It is about the providence of God. Now, if you think about Joseph in the Old Testament and his jealous brothers hating him and, and throwing him in a well and selling him into slavery and he's over in Egypt, uh, you find that that is a story of the will of God. Joseph is in the will of God. And, and the, the, the family that, that God promised Abraham to be the father of many nations, they were in a starving land and they came to Joseph and Joseph helped them to prosper and that they could continue to... To multiply and and so this was the will of God for Joseph but when you come to this book this is not about the will of God 
uh, so much for Esther or, or for Mordecai as it is a story about the providence of God. I mean, we do not have God's name in this book. So far, there has been nothing good or nothing godly that we've shared throughout this first chapter. It's an introduction through corruption into what we're going to get to here. I mean, all of the drunkenness, all of the immorality, all of the perversion, this is the introduction that kind of hit us you know, maybe a funny way as we went through chapter 1, but we have seen nothing good and nothing godly. We've seen insincere, uh, insincere motives till we get up to this point. But God is about to overrule in the midst of all of this sin. And we are going to see the providence of God. He is going to have someone to intervene on behalf of the Jews and, and to see the saving of the lives of the Jews. And one person that God is using in this is Mordecai. He's part of it. And though Mordecai has not been everything that he ought to be, he hasn't been everywhere he should have been, he hasn't done everything that he should do, God uses him to intervene. Again, this is not about the will of God. This is about the providence of God. I, I run across uh, another definition or a little description for providence. I know I've defined it in many ways, but I like what I read this week, and that is God as the third base coach. And the runner comes around second. And what does he do? Does he put on the brakes and stay at second? Is he going to go to third and stop? Or is he going to be waved all the way home by the third base coach? By the one who can see what the runner cannot see. And so that is God in His providence seeing ahead, guiding by the best steps that He knows that we should follow in. This is about the providence of God. God is guiding to the saving of many Jews who would be killed. Mordecai is not the only Jew that is used here by God. There's also a Jew that's an orphan who has been adopted by Mordecai. It's his uncle's daughter. His uncle passed away. The, the mother of this child passed away. And Mordecai is raising this child as his own now. Not the way some have been accused of, of raising an orphan, uh, being a foster and just wanting a check for it. I've heard of ugly things that have been said about people like that. Don't know if it's true. But that's not the case with Mordecai. He invested in in this young orphan, he loved her, he raised her as his very own. And we see in verse 7 that her name is Esther. And her name means star. And Esther's truly a star. She's, she's a, a beautiful woman. And her Hebrew name means myrtle, which speaks of a tree. 
And it just so happens that this tree blooms a flower that's the shape of a star. And so we have these two names. Many people were, were given two names for two different languages. And, and that's what we have here for Esther. When the plan for a new, key, new queen was announced, Mordecai became very interested because of the beauty of Esther. This does not mean that this is God's ideal plan for this. This does not mean that God is all about beauty pageants. This does not mean that this is all about God's perfect will and way that that He would do this. You know, it's kind of like you think of Samson and God gave Samson a job. Samson was to take out the Philistines and, and he went to do just that, but he didn't follow God's pattern. And the way things ended up for Samson when he finally did his job, it took out his own life and he went through some suffering through it. That wasn't God's pattern for it to get done, though it got done. And so we're not saying that that all of these things, we can incorporate God into condoning all of these things, but He has a plan for His people, the Jews, and a plan to save them. We surely can't say that everything in this process meets God's standards. Um, You know, only one is going to be queen. The rest are going to be concubines. And and God's not much on concubines. But God has a plan. And He sees ahead of time. And He is guiding according to His providence. But given all of these circumstances, Esther found favor in Shushan. She was selected with many others to spend one year with the keeper of the harem. Six months of oil treatments for these women and six months of perfume and the makeup or whatever for these women. And Esther was looked upon immediately as the front runner here. The king didn't even see her yet. And and Hege... She found favor with him immediately. She got special treatment immediately from him because of her beauty and she was looked on as the front runner and given special treatment during this time of this year. Now, now Mordecai and Esther, they are Jews. Here they are in the midst of the Persians. The Persians do not know that they are Jews. They, the Persians do not know their nationality. They kept that silent. And in order to keep their nationality silent, they would have had to have kept their religion silent. And I'm not saying that's a compliment. You know, there's, there's something about that that just says that everything is not perfect here. I mean, their obedience to the law of Moses obviously did not show to them. What about the dietary laws that they were to be a part of? It, they, those things didn't surface and give them away. But, but Esther's going to be used to, the, to save the Jews from a slaughtering. Now as we are looking at the person of the new queen, in verses 12 through 18 of what we just read, we see... The king's approval of Esther 
uh, after one year of preparation, a half a, a half a year of going through these oil treatments, a half a year of the perfume and the makeup. You know, that's a subject that you find extremists on both ends of. There are those who say there shouldn't be makeup at all whatsoever. There are those on the other side that, that maybe they're a little bit too much about it and there's, there's a little bit too much of it. There was one lady in church and, and she didn't wear makeup, which is fine, but she walked up to the preacher and she said, I don't believe in wearing makeup, what about you? And he said, I personally wouldn't mind if you went home and put on a little. I mean... There, there's nothing wrong with a little. It's good to have a little. We, we ought to, but, but there's people on different extremes of this. And, and I think they're both wrong. You know, right, right there in the, in the middle is okay. The focus is not on the beautification outwardly. We ought to take care of ourselves. We ought to stay groomed. We ought to, be, we ought to smell good. We ought to be cleaned up. You know, that, that's all fine and dandy. We, we definitely should do that. But that is never to be the primary beautification. The primary beautification is what's on the inside. So many people try to find a justification by their outward looks. They feel like their confidence their approval, their popularity, everything positive about their life will only come from the attention that they can get from their outward looks. And that is a deceived individual. That is like cotton candy. It's like a vapor. It doesn't stick. It's not the confidence that we are meant to look to primarily try to have as far as beautification on the outside. The primary beautification ought to be going on and worked on on the inside. Though the outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. There was a man, he's a Baptist preacher today. He was in prison at one time. He got saved in prison. He got out of prison and he got into church. And, and he's kind of comical and, and he said that he, he went to church and after a while he just could not take his eyes off of this woman. He said she wasn't very pretty. He said, but she was worshiping the Lord and I saw her beauty inside and I married her and that they've been married for years and years now and it was about her inward beauty. One man was looking for a wife. He, well, hopefully he was seeking God for that wife. And, and he was looking for her, and the first thing on his checklist wasn't, wasn't the attraction of looks. It wasn't love at first sight. It was that she would love Jesus Christ. That makes someone beautiful on the inside. And that is the most important beautification that one is to work on. Don't fall for the airbrushed babes in Hollywood. Most of them have the morals of an alley cat. And you have young people today who are looking at these people and following the wrong role models, 
following idols of fake people who are brushed up to the point that they don't even look like themselves. When it's all about attention to the outward features, we can be sure of this. It's getting ugly inside. It's getting ugly inside when it's all about the outside and that's the focus. Oh, but the work, the beautiful work that God does inside a soul. We don't see much of a godly system here going on because we have a year in the powder room for all of these women. This, you know, and and as it gets close to the time of, of choosing the queen, you know, Mordecai was very confident. He was very confident in his beautiful daughter. But don't you know when it got down to that time, he did some floor pacing and some fingernail biting because of the risk that was involved that could happen as a result. He believed his daughter was most beautiful of all, but she could be part of a group of unmarried concubines for the rest of her life. To make a long story short, we go to verse 17 and we see that the king looked upon Esther like none other. And she stole his heart. The king looked with such great enthusiasm uh, upon her than any of the rest, and he chose Esther as the new queen. And now we have another banquet. But this time isn't, isn't a self-agenda secret celebration of of something personal behind the scenes like whenever the king had the banquet for all of his leaders of the provinces to come in and and to uh, get them going on his war strategy and and to win them over you know by his uh, ways uh, behind the scenes this time it is a banquet for a new queen it's not agenda but it's for, it's for Queen Esther. And so we start seeing how all this has happened. Has it happened by chance? Has all of this happened by accident? That there is a woman who is a Jew who is now queen where we're going to see that many Jews are, are aimed at and the plan is for them to be killed? No, this is the providence of God. God is on third base. And He's waving waving it on by His providence. He's looking ahead and He's guiding and He's directing these steps to the saving of Jews from death. We're starting to get to the whole reason for the corrupt introduction that we went through last time. God will begin to overrule a situation that the devil is leading in. And so now let's look at verses 19 through 23 at the providence for the new queen. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate... Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, 
two of the king's chamberlains, uh, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth, and sought to lay hands on the king of Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Well, verse 19 begins with a second gathering together of the women. Some have said that this second gathering together of the women were those who were not chosen as queen, and it was kind of their a farewell goodbye for them. That doesn't fit the king's character, unfortunately. What does fit the king's character is that he would keep them for his own concubines. So beginning in verse 19, and when the virgins were gathered together the second time, it reveals more of man's uh, pervertedness. But the end of verse 19 reveals more of God's providence. Then, after she was made queen, Esther, and after that gathering of, of the women... Then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. And that's not talking about like the time I went down to Matamoros, Mexico, and at the gate of the city, the, the, the people sat there and leaned against the gate who wanted help, wanted a dollar, wanted some food. That's not what this means when we speak of the king's gate. This is a place of honor. Right after the orphan daughter is made queen, the man who raised her as his own daughter is given an official position to take care of business at the king's gate. It's a government position now. He is a judge, Mordecai is. How did that happen? You know, maybe Mordecai stood out and he really shined. I mean, he's not perfect as we shared, but, but he is a wise man. I mean, look in verse 20 and you'll see that Esther is queen now. She is in the royal palace. She has a king to be with and to answer to. And she is still taking advice from Mordecai. That says a whole lot about him. So it could be that he really shined and got that position. It could be that Queen Esther whispered in the king's ear, Hey, I noticed you're one official short down at the gate. Man, do I have somebody great to tell you about for that position. Mordecai would be great. I, I don't know. I don't know if a little politics got involved there, you know, concerning family. But ultimately, what we have here is the overriding of God's providence. And what we see here hugely comes into play in the long run that we have in verses 21 through 23. Here Mordecai, he has his position at the gate to take care of the business of the king. 
and all of a sudden he hears. He, he hears two men talking. And then he hears the king's name. And then you can imagine the cupping of the, the hand around the ear to hear closely. I don't, I don't know why only Nolan and I know that that helps you to hear better. Nobody else seems to know that, but it works. People argue with me, but it works. You hear better. And, and I, can, I can picture Mordecai really leaning in and, and listening to what's going on. And he hears these two men talking. And he hears these men talking about a plot to kill the king. Why are they going to kill the king? Why do they want to kill King Hashuerus? Well, we don't know, but... But we do know that someone was just made queen. We have a new queen. And then we have the king with a plot out to kill, to kill him, to take his life. What, what is it? Maybe some higher ups in some of these provinces. Maybe they wanted their daughter to be the new queen. Somebody's mad over something. Whatever the case, Mordecai, Mordecai is in position at the gate. He hears the two men talking. He listens intently. He, he gathers the information about a plot to kill the king. Mordecai directly reports this to Queen Esther who turns around and reports this to the king to the saving of his life. And a record is made that Mordecai has brought this information to the queen who brought it to the king for the saving of his life. Mordecai is on record. But, you know, I mean, with all the feasts going on for different things, can we get a feast for Mordecai? Can, Can we get some kind of reward for Mordecai for what he's done? We see nothing here, just that he was put in the record for this. You know, good seed is planted, but that does not mean that the fruit immediately appears. You know, evil is always in pursuit of the sinful, and evil's going to catch up with the sinful, and they're going to have their day. But the righteous will be repaid for their good deeds. It's going to be in God's timing, in His perfect timing, in His own way. His timing is always perfect. These sinful men who plotted to kill, their lives were gone. They were put to get to death. Sin always catches up. But as for the doer of the word, the doer of good deeds... The good that comes from it, it might not be immediately. Galatians 6, 9 comes to mind for the righteous doer of good deeds. It says, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. God doesn't just override in affairs in Shushan. God overrides in situations today for you. You may be in a situation where it seems like what God would want hasn't prevailed in your life. 
you, you are struggling through something and it seems like that, that there's just no attention on what's right happening in your life from God. But He's still overriding today. He went overriding in the midst of a situation that was godless, that was thankless to heaven, and He was on third base. He's on third base for every single one of us. Making the perfect call in advance if we will look to Him and honor Him and follow Him, that, that we would trust Him. And you know, you know, as I think about that, as I think about that third base providence, I think about when it's, when it's clearly a home run and, and before that runner gets around second, third base coach is already sending him home. Go on home. And one day, that's going to be the call for every single one of us. We're going to go home to glory, to be with the Lord forever. And He has arranged that. He knows the time of that. And we're going to be joyful, just like the celebration for Nelly this week. We're going to be joyful over this. How about now? How about those calls in our life right now? They're ahead of us. We don't know the answer. God does. Trust in the providence of God who goes before us. Let Him overrule in your circumstances. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. I heard a good word on that this week. That word let puts some responsibility on us that we would not let our heart be troubled as we look to Jesus. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your heart. That's something for you and I to give way to. That is something that you and I have a responsibility to make a decision in by the, leader, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that, that in the midst of our storm, in the midst of whatever your situation is, in the midst of a gigantic answer that's coming this week in some way, and you don't know which way it's going, let not your heart be troubled. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Trust Him tonight to overrule your circumstances. The theme verse for camp, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let him overrule. Amen. Well, we are going to go right into chapter 3 next Wednesday. And it's, it's good to see this number in God's house tonight. And um, y'all have a blessed evening and blessed rest of your week. And Let's be praying about the services on Sunday. And, and everyone at camp greatly appreciates your prayers for camp. And that God would move in the lives of these children and there would be no hindrance whatsoever that we would be completely out of the way and God would have His way in all of our lives next week.
And with that, I'm going to ask Dustin Boone if he'll close our service in a word of prayer. Love you all. And